0: Hello, you are listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast, and this is episode number 49. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and in this episode, I'm excited to share the audio of an interview I had with Noah Levine of Refuge Recovery. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to interview Noah Levine, founder of Refuge Recovery, a mindfulness-based addiction recovery community that practices and utilizes Buddhist philosophy as the foundation of the recovery process. We all know someone who is, has been, or will be affected by addiction. It may even be you. The information presented in this discussion could change your life or the life of someone you love. The original interview was broadcast live to the Secular Buddhism Facebook page and uploaded to our YouTube channel. You can watch it at facebook.com forward slash secular buddhism. So welcome to the Secular Buddhism podcast and at least right now the Secular Buddhism podcast live on Facebook. <laughs> um,
1: can, you share it, can you share it live on my page at the same time?
0: Uh, let's see. I think it only allows me to share to the pages that I manage, but I have would, you tagged. Cool. I have you tagged, so hopefully that will show up on your page.
1: There's probably a to do it, huh? What was that? I said there's probably a way for me to share it live from your page or something.
0: Yeah, there should be. Oh, here's what I'll do. I'll share the stream on, do you want me to share it on the uh, refuge recovery page?
1: Sure. You could do it on refuge, but I was thinking on the no Levine one Oh eight. That's where most of the, the largest number of uh, followers are.
0: Okay. I'll look for that real quick. Oh yeah. I see that. Okay, I'll share the link there. Okay, I posted that on your page. Cool. Great. So uh, this whole idea to interview, you kind of started as, um, I picked up a copy of your book, Refuge Recovery, uh, after a friend of mine was going through uh, addiction and recovery and, and kind of dealing with the aftermath of it really, you know, spending time in prison. And it got me interested in, in wanting to discuss the topic of addiction and recovery with him, but a mindfulness-based approach, you know, a Buddhist-based approach. So I, I picked up your book and started reading it. And, and the very first thing that happened uh, as I started reading it was something that had happened a while back in my life. Um, my, my wife and I went to marriage counseling uh, many years ago, and I remember going through that and thinking, "This content is incredible. Why, why do couples wait until they need to hear this? You know, why don't they? It should be mandatory. If you're going to get married, you've got to go to marriage counseling, pass this <laughs> course, and then you're going to have all these incredible tools for how to deal with the inevitable ups and downs of marriage." Um, and I had this similar experience reading your book, where I was thinking. Wait a second. This isn't necessarily for someone who has, uh, who's already struggling with addiction. This should be for anyone because it helps you to understand the underlying causes of addiction, which happen to be very similar or, if not the same, as the underlying causes of suffering. Um, and, and so I decided, well, I want to talk to Noah and maybe feature this book and feature your work on the podcast to uh, my podcast listeners who are just interested in living more mindfully, because this is exactly what that does. It helps you to, I think, if anything, preempt ever reaching that stage where, where you may uh, encounter addiction. And, and certainly there will be p- people listening to this who know of someone in the past or, or in the present or in the future who may uh, struggle with addiction and recovery. So I thought it was, it was good timing to have a conversation about it. So thank you for your time and for joining me to have this conversation. Um, what I was hoping we could talk about first is maybe just a, a brief introduction about you, your your story, uh, what led you to uh, refuge, you know, to create refuge recovery, and your story with uh, what led you to mindfulness and Buddhism. Are you there?
1: I am, but I'm missing you a little bit. Let me disappear for one moment. Make sure I'm on the right Wi-Fi. Just one moment.
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: I'm still here. If you still have my audio, I just want to make sure I'm on the right Wi-Fi. Right. Help. Let's get a better connection here. Can you still hear me?
0: Yep, and I see you now.
1: Sorry to disappear. Let's see. That should hopefully solve our connection problem, let's see.
0: Cool. Thank you.
1: So uh, tell me the question again, and I'm happy to be on the show with you, and thanks for inviting me.
0: <laughs> Great. Uh, so the question was, I was hoping you'd, you'd share just a, a brief summary of your story, your background, what led you to refuge recovery and what led you down the path of uh, studying Buddhism and mindfulness in general.
1: So I was one of the, um, I think, somewhat rare cases where I was born into a Western family, an American uh, family of European descent, who were already practicing Buddhism when I was born. And, um, you know, my father, had found what I'd call the Dharma mindfulness Buddhism um, you know in the 1950s and the 1960s, and had really committed his, his life uh, to meditation practice now my, my dad, Stephen Levine, who you I 'm sure you know and, and many people know, and wrote all these wonderful books about mindfulness and about death and dying and bringing a, a mindful and a spiritual perspective to grief and healing and grieving. And uh, so I grew, I grew up with it, right? So I was basically introduced to Buddhism, you know, from from my early childhood. But I uh, dutifully rebelled against it and had my own trauma. My parents were diver- divorced when I was very young. And um, there was addiction in my family. Both my mother and my father had had addiction in their lives and my mother was still struggling with addiction and my father had you know my father wasn't somebody who would consider himself in recovery but he you know had went from being a heroin addict to being a a meditator (laughs) uh he didn't call it recovery because he's still you know pot or alcohol or something like that but he he was able to get off of the the core addictions that he'd had earlier in his life really through meditation practice Am I still there? I just got a message that said I was disconnected.
0: Oh, yeah. You're still here.
1: Okay. Um, So by the time, you know, and I I just, I started, by the time I was five years old, I was feeling suicidal. I was just like, I want out. And I knew about death and I knew about reincarnation. And and I was just in that pain and suffering that felt like, um, oh, I could just kill myself and start over. Hmm. Um, and, and at such a young age. And then I found drugs and alcohol, and I started drinking my parents' booze, and smoking their weed, and eating their acid, and their mushrooms. And, and drugs saved my life. Drugs were like the thing that allowed me to self-medicate and hmm. get out of some of the pain and existential angst and, and suffering that I was experiencing in early childhood That you know, so much so that I was suicidal. Um, And drugs and alcohol were a good time. And I found punk rock in, you know, 1979. And I found, you know, I found like this radical, rebellious drug culture that made a lot more sense to me than mindfulness, than meditation, than uh, I had had pain and I, uh, you know, was meeting my pain with trying to avoid it. And 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 that worked for some time, and then uh, it stopped working. Which is what happens for all addicts, <laughs> mm-hmm. for all you know, not only addicts. I think that this is actually, you know, our coping mechanisms. Sure. Uh, you know, only work for so long. And by the time I was a teenager, I wasn't experimenting with drugs. I was addicted, and I was smoking crack cocaine and I was injecting heroin and I was drinking alcoholically on a daily basis. And, and I was in and out of institutions, you know, and I started getting locked up and um, I started getting sent to recovery stuff at about 13 because I'd get arrested a lot. So they'd send me to AA Hmm. and say, get your court card signed. And so I had some awareness that there were recovering addicts and alcoholics. Um, and of course I had awareness of Buddhists and you know these spiritual folks that my dad was hanging out with, and Ram Das was around, and Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and all of these wonderful meditation teachers. Mm-hmm. So but so I didn't some, feel like any of it applied to me.
0: Yeah, and, and then so from what I was reading, something happens at some point. You were in prison at the time, and uh, tell me about that pivotal, pivotal moment where you kind of shift and realize you're ready to be done with this. Sure. So
1: in 1988, I was 17 years old. I had three felonies. I was looking at doing multiple years in, in prison, in a youth prison. Um, and there was a shift. Uh, I had a suicide attempt. I woke up in a padded cell. For the first time in my life, I realized I took some responsibility. I realized that I was in that situation based on my own karma, my own Mm -hmm. actions. Mm -hmm. And with that realization came both a ton of shame and guilt and remorse a little bit of hopelessness, but also a little bit of hope came from that taking responsibility. If I got myself into this situation, Mm -hmm. maybe I can get myself out. Mm -hmm. Up to that time, I blamed everyone else. And so then taking some responsibility gave me some agency in in creating some change. Mm -hmm. My father took the opportunity when I was talking to him on the telephone from my cell, or from the, the, the phone in the, the institution to say, try meditating, try mindfulness, go back to your room, try to ignore your mind and pay attention to your breath. Just do simple breath awareness practice. He said, it'll some relief from um, all of this fear of the future and regret from the past. He said, it'll give you some relief It's worth trying. Try it. And I was desperate enough and uh, that I said, okay. And I went and, and I sat in my cell and I started meditating. And I started a meditation practice that became the only thing that really made sense to me. I saw in meditation right from the beginning that this was an action that I could take. I wasn't very good at it. It wasn't a quick fix. It didn't solve all of my problems, but it gave me a tiny bit of relief. And it theoretically made sense to me that I was training my own attention, mindfulness of the breath and body and getting some relief from the confusion in my mind, the addiction and uh, you know, in my mind. Mm. And at the same time, I started going to recovery. I started going to the 12-step meetings that were in the institutions. And in there, what they were saying was the solution a Judeo-Christian philosophy that God was going to remove from me, that a higher power was going to restore me to sanity and remove my alcoholic craving, that didn't make sense to me. I was an atheist. You know, like what they were saying didn't make sense. But the meditation made sense. Mm -hmm. But what I found in recovery was I found community. I found all of these wonderful people who are just suffering like me, addicts, and they were there to help and they we're just like volunteering to show up and saying like, you can recover. And so the 12 step, um, community has been so, uh, integral, so important, so key to my recovery. Cause when I started, when I got out of jail and I started going to Buddhist meditation retreats, the Buddhists weren't really my people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Buddhists were like my dad's friends. Yeah. They weren't, you know, but the, recovering addicts those were my people the alcoholics those those were my my homies Mm -hmm. and so for a long time i had this buddhist based practice and view um but my community was the 12-step recovery community
0: Mm -hmm. And, and so that's where you start to develop the refuge recovery program is that right
1: i didn't um you know for the first 15 years Hmm. I practiced Buddhism. I participated in 12 Steps. I began teaching Buddhism. My teachers, Jack Kornfield, uh, Venerable Ajahn Amaro, my father, Stephen Levine, started encouraging me to teach. I started going back into the juvenile halls and the prisons, community groups, teaching mindfulness and loving kindness and forgiveness and teaching meditation. But I didn't do recovery-based meditation. I said, this is for everyone. Everyone has some suffering, not mm-hmm. just us addicts. Everyone has it. Mm-hmm. I want to make this available to uh, to everyone. I don't want to exclude someone like you that doesn't identify as a recovering addict from my meditation community. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say this is only if you've become a junkie <laughs> mm-hmm. or an alcoholic. Yeah. So for the first you know, 15 years of teaching, I've been teaching for over 20 years now. Um, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't do recovery stuff, really. I did, you know, I did Buddhism for everyone. Yeah. But because my first book, Dharma Punks, was about my addiction and recovery and Buddhist practice, half of the people that showed up to sit with me were in recovery hmm. and half weren't. So eventually, uh, about 10 years ago, it seemed like, oh, I should, I should create something. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff that's been done around Buddhism and the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Kevin Griffin, Darren Littlejohn, um, a, a handful of other people who've done this kind of cool stuff around, like, here's a Buddhist way to, to look at the 12 steps, hmm. which I thought was, what a great resource. But it always left me a feeling a little bit like, why do we have to keep trying to understand a Judeo-Christian worldview through a non-theistic Buddhist worldview? <laughs> you know, sure. why do we have to keep trying to make these things that don't really fit, fit? They fit right. in some ways and they don't fit in other ways, right? Mm-hmm. Belief in God or not belief, you know, like it doesn't totally fit. Sure. So then that's when I said, okay, I, I'm. nobody else seems to be doing it. My community is asking for it, um, you know, which had become thousands of people, uh, you know, my centers in San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles and Nashville and Boston and, you know, just all of these communities that were hungry for it. So that's when I, I um, created Refuge Recovery, which, you know, three years ago when Refuge Recovery book came out, there was about 10 buddhist recovery meetings in our lineage. Hmm. Now there's over 300.
0: Wow. And
1: it is just like as soon as the book was out there people were just like yes, this is what I was looking for. This makes more sense to me or this helps me understand the 12 steps or the you know, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I love the 12 steps, but I never really learned how to meditate. So now refuge recovery Is an opportunity to really learn some deep meditation practices. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. One thing I loved about the way you formatted the book is it not only introduces you to these concepts and and helps you understand why they work, but it, it gives you the outline of, you know, if you don't have a a group close by, this is how you can format these meetings yourself. And then you do this and you do that teaches the meditation. It, I think it's really useful for, Someone who may not have a group that they can attend, yeah um, so refuge recovery is pretty big now uh, so tell us a little bit about how this works because you have an actual center right where people could get go could go to like get clean, but there are also uh, communities like local groups that get together um, what 's the difference between the two
1: yeah so there's there's the um There's a professional treatment center. It's called Refuge Recovery Treatment Centers. And, you know, detox, residential, sober living for people that want to come to a a professional treatment, you know, Mm -hmm. with psychotherapy and trauma resolution and physicians and medicine management, all of that. So that's, you know, that's available. It's insurance reimbursed. We just have one center um, so far in Los Angeles, I felt like it was my responsibility. If I was going to say, here's a recovery path, I knew so many people were going to want to use it for treatment to mm-hmm. actually provide a really good professional treatment model with it. So we're doing that and people can find that information on, uh, refuge recovery, uh, treatment or refuge recovery.com. Okay. So, uh, but then the other side of it, Is What I really wanted was, I think that the 12-step model of um, peer-led addicts helping each other, alcoholics helping each other, is brilliant. And so we created a format for this is how we can do a peer-led meeting with a guided meditation in each meeting that's not led by a meditation teacher, but by a script. Mm -hmm. Here's the mindfulness instructions, here's the forgiveness instructions, the loving kindness. And it's just read by somebody, you know, read slowly by somebody in the meeting so that every meeting has a meditation practice with the instructions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that because it allows anybody to lead that. Yeah. Um, So let's talk really quickly about some of the key differences or similarities between a program like refuge recovery versus let's say AA, you know, the 12 step program or any other program like that.
1: Um, so there's so much in common, uh, and there's some key differences. I mean, some. Of the, let's let's point to the common first. Like uh, community is key. So mm-hmm. you know, peer support, accountability, um, compassion, and service. Helping each other, tolerating each other, key. Um, showing up and having commitments to say, I'm going to be here. I'm going to. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my. My inventories. I'm going to look at myself and my resentments and the suffering and the cause of suffering. You know, there's all of these commonalities. The core difference between a Buddhist perspective and a theistic perspective is that um, you know the 12 steps are still are are, are ascribing to a monotheistic. Worldview that human beings are powerless; that there's a grace or a a blessing or a cursing from God that uh, is, you know, affecting us; that there's a a higher power that is actually in control of human beings, and um, and Buddhism has a non-theistic worldview that understands karma, that believes in responsibility, that believes in the human ability to free themselves from the suffering of addiction through their own actions and their own efforts. Some of the 12-step view is that human beings can't do that. Only God can do that. Only God can restore you to sanity. Only a higher power can remove the craving for alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. Um, So there's some differences there, right? Is it, do you assign that recovery to an external power greater than yourself, or do you? assign that meaning to one's own actions and the human ability to heal, to recover, to awaken. And so Buddhism takes that much more of a humanist psychology view than a, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian theistic view.
0: Sure. Okay. Which, yeah, obviously is very suitable for someone with that worldview. Um, So I want to discuss now a couple of the, things that really stood out to me in your book. Um, so, uh, I, I love the book, you know, I feel like it does a great job of presenting the basic, uh, Buddhist philosophy. Um, and just kind of summarizing this again for listeners. So from, from the Buddhist perspective, there's, there's kind of this idea that there's, there's life as it is right. Reality. And then there's life as we think it should be, which is the, the story or the narrative. And sometimes they don't match up. And when we encounter this, we we have this sense of discomfort. Something is wrong. I need this to match this, right? And and that's not the problem. That uh, up until this point, that's all okay. The problem becomes that with the discomfort, I don't. I'm not comfortable with the discomfort, so I'm going to start doing something about it. And and that's where we often get into trouble. You know, the discomfort of being with our um, the the expectation of reality, not meeting reality. I, I start to do things like self-medicate, like you, talk, like you talked about. Now, to, uh, on the extreme end, we're talking about addictive behavior, right? Drugs, alcohol, but it could be on, on a less extreme case, similar patterns. I'm on Facebook all day. Um, you know, it could be, it could be I- anything on, on that spectrum, but ultimately, it's rooted in the fact that I'm simply not comfortable with the discomfort that my expected reality isn't matching reality. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: I like it. I I mean, I feel like that is a, I I like the way that you're saying that. Yes, I think it's fair. You know, I mean, it's, um, as you know, it's what the Buddha talked about as Tanha, craving, Mm -hmm. craving for reality, it to be more pleasant, less painful. Um, uh, But I like the way you're talking about is like just expectations. And sure. um, yeah, I like that.
0: Yeah. So from, from the Buddhist perspective, we talk about how, um, you know, the moment we want life to be other than it is, we're going to experience suffering. And that's natural. You talk about this in your book, how um, the, the desire, you know, desire versus craving. Um, and you say that there's a difference between the two because craving is the thought and feeling that says, I, I have to have it. I cannot be happy without it and desire is is simply recognizing i want it but i'll be fine with or without it and this is kind of what i was alluding to with um you know the underlying cause of suffering being that we want things to be other than they are that's not the problem it's taking it a step further that our inability to be to, to allow ourselves to just be in that space of discomfort at times so we start to do something about it and oftentimes that's what gets us into trouble um and you talk about how our, our relationship to craving, it's not craving itself that's the problem, right? Because that's natural. It's, and I like how you worded this, it's the problem lies in our addiction to satisfying our craving, right? Because that's different than there's craving and then there's the addiction to satisfying the craving. Let's uh, talk to me a little bit about that, that thought process there.
1: I mean, I just think that this is so key because... Without mindfulness, without some introspection, some self-awareness, we believe that we have to satisfy our cravings mm-hmm. and we take it all so personal. Mm-hmm. But you do a bit of mindfulness, you start observing your mind and your emotions and your sensations and you start to see how impersonal this human craving machine that we are, <laughs> that we live in, is. And then you start to see it like, oh, no, craving, isn't that, you know... Of course there's craving. That's just what this biological imperative is here, is craving. Mm-hmm. And, and when you step back from it, and you actually get a understanding of it. Then you say, craving again, no big deal. I don't have to satisfy it. I'm no longer addicted to it or, or so identified with thinking that I have to obey my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like mindfulness really does that it really shifts our relationship to our minds. And you realize like, oh, a lot of my thoughts are untrustworthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of my cravings are based in confusion, based in ignorance, are, tell- are lying to me and saying, if you do this, you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And then you know you do it over and over, and you realize like, yeah, it doesn't work. I tried. I tried satisfying all of my cravings. It made my life worse, not better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, you know, there's that shift from uh, taking it personal and 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 obeying it to starting to have some renunciation and not and but also not judging the fact that we are craving beings.
0: Sure. Yeah. I I like to say this when I'm teaching mindfulness, you know, that we're not trying to change our feelings. We're not trying to change our thoughts. We're trying to understand the relationship we have with our feelings because our our problem isn't the feeling. It's the, it's the clinging to a certain feeling or the aversion of this other feeling. I want more happiness. I want less sadness, right? That's, that's ultimately what's, what's getting us in trouble, not necessarily the feeling itself. And, And you address that, uh, I think very well in in your book. Um, one aspect of this that, uh, in your book kind of reminded me of the, the Stanford marshmallow experiment, you know, on, on delayed gratification. This is the experiment where, where children were offered the choice between a small reward immediately or two small rewards if they waited for a short period Uh, of approximately 15 minutes. And in all of the follow-up studies, this is where it gets interesting. The researchers found that the children who were able to wait longer for the preferred reward um, had better life outcomes like SAT scores, educational attainment, and just other life measures. So what that indicates to me, again, is what mindfulness is helping to understand is our ability to be with something patiently for a moment, especially discomfort. Right. What I see over and over when I'm when I'm teaching uh, mindfulness at, at workshops is people who are experiencing some form of suffering, um, who are unable to be with the suffering, uh, complicate it. You know, like Pema Pema Chodron says, like uh, the uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but like uh, often the the worst of our situations are the ones we give ourselves. Right. A lot of the suffering that we experience is suffering self-inflicted, um, so uh, I think that's where mindfulness really kicks in here. Um, and it's something that you talked about in your book that I, I wanted to address here. Um, you know, you said, "What does awakening or enlightenment look like?" No, no, this is me me asking you, "What does awakening or enlightenment look like to you? How how would you describe it?"
1: To be awake seems to mean to see reality clearly. Mm-hmm. When you're seeing reality clearly, you're understanding that everything is impermanent. Everything is constantly changing. Every thought, every feeling, every sensation, every person, that this law of impermanence, when we're awake, we're seeing that. We're understanding it. And we're living in harmony with it. Um, Understanding that, you know, we're seeing reality clearly, that everything is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, that there's just a feeling tone to every sight, sound, smell, taste, sensation, environment. Thought. And thought, yeah, what happens in the mind. And that our relationship to that pleasant or unpleasant uh, perception is the cause of our ease, our suffering. So when Mm -hmm. we're awake, we know, as you were pointing to before, it's not what's happening. It's how we relate to what's happening. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So when we're awake, we understand that everything's impermanent and that our response is going to be, you know, how we're relating to it's going to be the cause of our happiness or unhappiness. And maybe the third thing that I will say is um, we're also awake to how impersonal so much of what we're experiencing is. Uh, There is not a solid, separate entity that we can say, this is I, this is me, this is mine. That what we have taken birth into is a human condition, as a craving mind and body, and it's not our fault, and it's not who we are, and it's not personal. And so really, to be awake in the simple way is to see clearly and respond appropriately the appropriate response ends suffering and that so that that would be my working uh definition of what it means to be enlightened or awake yeah and and, you know and then there's the question of and also of to recover right what are we recovering to we're recovering to this ability to see clearly and to be at ease in the midst of joy or sorrow yeah. To not you know to not satisfy our cra- our addictive cravings and to see that they're impermanent and that they arise and they pass, that mm-hmm. they're calling for compassion, that they're calling for forgiveness. Sure. And yeah. then there's a question of you know, is this awakening permanent? <laughs> or are uh, they little moments of awakening throughout our meditative life? Now of course the Buddha said, eventually you can come to Nirvana, you know, a, a permanent state of not suffering, uh, where you will end the cycle of rebirth and you will be free from suffering forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's a that's the you know that's the highest level. And then I think there's the practical level that we're working with, which is like in this moment, could I see more clearly? Could I respond more wisely? Sure. Am I clinging to something that I could let go of? Am I resisting something that I could accept that is impermanent, even if it's painful, even if it's a painful emotion, can mm-hmm. I accept this, be with it, let it come through, let it pass through rather mm-hmm. than damming it up.
0: Sure. Yeah, you know, and I think that's where this concept of suffering is natural, right? But we start to suffer because we're suffering and we're compounding. This is where it becomes unnecessary suffering and I think this is what I, I like about the mindfulness approach in general, but especially the refuge recovery approach with addiction. Um, I see in and people who are struggling with addiction this sense of you described it earlier, you know, there's there's a period of of guilt, of um, feeling unworthy. Um, and, and and this approach helps you to know, or I guess helps you to to realize. As Alan Watts says, right? You're, you're under no obligation to be who you were five minutes ago. This, this idea of impermanence frees you. It gives you this sense of liberation to say, "Hey, I in any given moment, I get to start over. It's this moment is the moment that matters. Everything in the past is is done now. It's it's over. So I don't have to hang on to that guilt or to that shame, because I do have the the ability to say, well. You know, don't judge me for who I was yesterday. I get to start over now uh, with this new, new information, new knowledge. Um, I wrote down a quote from your book that I really like going back to this awakening and enlightenment. You said, awakening within each of us is the experience of non-suffering. Not suffering can be considered blissful when compared to suffering, but that does not mean it is pleasurable all the time. We need to let go of our fantasy of unending pleasure and craving for the pain-free existence. Uh, that's not the type of spiritual awakening that the Buddhist path offers. And I like this because we're going back to this, uh, it's this form of radical okayness. My friend, uh, Christopher uh, uh, Lebo Ross, who runs the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship here, uh, he talks about this concept of rattle- radical okayness. The first time I heard it, I just loved it because life can be radically okay. And that's kind of what you're insinuating in this definition of enlightenment. It's that realization that it can be okay and it can be okay that it's not okay. Right. I, I can be with whatever the emotion is that I'm experiencing. And that to me, from, from a secular Buddhist standpoint, is, uh, really resonates with this idea of enlightenment. It's, it's okay. that you become okay with reality as it is, even if that means being okay that it's not okay.
1: Yeah, I like it. Yeah. And I mean, and then our definition of okay and not okay is, you know, is it painful? And it's like, yeah, yes, we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that maybe uh, in a trad- more traditional language, we'd talk about that okayness as equanimity, right? Mm-hmm. That equanimity of if it's painful, I can still be at ease in the midst of pain. Sure. I don't have to add anger and hatred and fear on top of it. It's just pain. Yeah. Um, you know, and also with joy. I don't have to ruin joy by getting attached to it. <laughs> uh-huh. I can let it arise and pass.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And, and you see this all the time. I, at least I see this all the time. And I, I used to see this all the time in myself, particularly with the negative emotions of being angry, but then being angry that I was angry. Or being sad, and now I'm sad that I'm sad. And at the time, not realizing that a significant part of that um, discomfort or that suffering was the second layer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have a couple of questions that people sent in and wanted me to ask you. So uh, I want to go through a couple of these real quick. One of them has to do with the TED Talk um, uh, everything you know about addiction is wrong. Are you familiar with that video? I'm not. So uh, I watched it. One of the things I liked about it, kind of what he's trying to get at is that the way we've looked at and tried to understand addiction may be completely wrong. And the, what he gets at at the end is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but it's connection. It's, it's our inability to have connection that can lead us down... The path of addiction and I, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that idea
1: I, I um, you know there it's it's not a, a new concept that um, much of addiction is a attachment disorder mm-hmm. uh, and that you know that addicts become pretty isolated even if they're in a drug community it's still a fairly self-centered experience of being an addict and a lack of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this is addressed very well. Um, so I don't know what his argument against, because I feel like um, it's addressed very well in the 12 steps and also in refuge recovery, that a huge part of the healing from from addiction is the community is being connected to fellowship to sangha the accountability that i feel like that is pretty well understood that part of the recovery well and i think that's the argument he's
0: making that with that strong connection you're less likely to uh have problems with addiction
1: oh to become an addict in the first place right well of course that's true but that's that That's true, but that also feels self-evident of like, yeah, well, why? I mean, and this is part of the inventory process in Refuge, which is everyone has craving. Mm-hmm. Not everyone becomes addicts. So there's a 30-question inventory process in Refuge Recovery that says, let's try to identify how, you know, what set us apart from normal craving and, and pushed us over into addictive Behavior and d- addictive craving, mm-hmm. and that attachment stuff—the lack of connection—obviously, yes, that's for a lot of us. We felt isolated, we felt alone, we had low self-esteem, we felt separate, different from. So we started listening to punk rock and shooting heroin, and then we felt like <laughs> then we felt like we were then we felt like we were part of something and connected to something. Or um, so. Yes, yeah, I, I have, I'd have to watch it, but I, I think that it makes sense. Of course, it's connection, that sure. it's disconnection that's part of the cause of addiction, and it's reconnection that is a huge part of recovery.
0: Sure. Yeah, and I thought that one was interesting to bring up, because the idea of connection in relationship to non-attachment from, from the Buddhist perspective know we're we're kind of saying well but that's also the problem right the way that we connect to our emotions or to our feelings that that's the problem um
1: yeah but but here no i think that the 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 difference the way that i think about it is that this is connection to Mm -hmm. you know my hands and and whether that's with another person connected or that's being connected with yourself with your feelings with your Mm -hmm. heart and mind where you're, you're present and you're embracing and you're touching it, but you also understand that it's impermanent, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no grip on it. You're connected to it, but you're not, you know, this is attachment. Mm-hmm. This is why when we're clinging and you're like, you're not letting this be impermanent and right. you're clinging to, you know, becomes codependency and it becomes, you know, sex addiction or whatever, however it manifests.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then sometimes people hear the mindfulness, the Buddha stuff, and they say detachment. Mm-hmm. Let me just avoid that shit because that shit hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But it's not, you know, the Buddha's not, you know, mindfulness is not about detachment. It's about yeah. connected, non-attached connection mm-hmm. to impermanent process. Yep. And so I think that that is very, very key that um, it's not attachment, it's connection mm-hmm. that we're looking for. Yeah,
0: not I love swinging,
1: that. Not love you yeah,
0: and I think visualizing that with the hands makes just it makes so much sense. It's not this, and it's not right. this.
1: It's oh, that's this. right for, <laughs> for the people who uh, are not going to see this, but are going to listen to the podcast. <laughs> it's not going to make as much sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> True, they won't know what we're doing with our hands. <laughs> um, okay, so the next question. This is from Lucas in Canada. Uh, he says, I'd like to ask about cannabis. Um, I would like to know if Noah thinks it's possible to consume in a responsible manner while following the path. Cannabis has been a part of my life for a long time now. Now that I'm older, I, I've learned to consume without excess, and I understand the relationship I have with the drug. I reflected on the non-attachment aspect of the practice, and I know my habit doesn't own me. I don't define my happiness by it, nor do I need it to be happy. Most Buddhists I've talked to about this don't agree with me. They see it as attachment and always conclude that it's bad for my practice. I understand where they come from and I'm a bit conflicted on it. Uh, So having the opinion of someone like Noah who knows a lot about addiction and follows the path would be very helpful. What would you say to Lucas?
1: So there's a, I would say several different things. Um, Partially to Lucas, it depends on the level of motivation and attainment that you're looking for in your Buddhist path. If you're somewhat interested in um, kind of just, if you're just sort of using meditation as uh, a, a kind of something to suffer a little bit less and have a little bit less stress and know yourself a little bit better, then I think that there's probably a place uh, to find a balanced relationship to intoxicants, and mm-hmm. you know, also Lucas, you know, a lot of those people who are saying like, "Oh no, cannabis, there's no place for it." Uh, the Buddha would put pot and alcohol absolutely in the same category, and um, so whether it's a glass of wine or or a or a bong hit, <laughs> uh, the Buddha would have the same attitude about any kind of recreational drug use, whether it's pot or booze or whatever it is. Um, Which is just just to
0: clarify, which is what view?
1: Which is abstinence, you know. So in the in the precepts, in the you know early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha said, if you want to be mind, if you want to come to awakening, you're going to have to try to be mindful all of the time. Mm -hmm. Don't put anything into your system that makes being mindful more difficult. Marijuana makes being mindful more difficult. Alcohol makes being mindful more difficult. And if you have too much weed or alcohol or Even too much sugar or caffeine, um, if you overdo it, you're going to become, you know, uh, heedless to the point where you can't pay attention at all. Mm -hmm. In moderation, maybe there's still a little bit of mindfulness, but it's a distorted mindfulness. The alcohol distorts your view. The marijuana distorts your view. Even if it makes sometimes when you're high, you feel like, wait, no, I'm more present, not less. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels like it's increasing it, but it's still, it's distorting it. It's not uh, unadultered. So I want to say all of that. The traditional view, of course, is abstinence. Mm-hmm. That having been said, you mentioned Alan Watts earlier. Mm-hmm. I could name 20 well accomplished Buddhists who have written books, who who smoke weed, who drink alcohol, who do not follow the fifth precept of the Buddha, who you know for forty years, fifty years have been meditating, and have clearly decreased the amount of suffering in their life, and have dedicated their lives to helping others, um, and then in some traditions, uh, like in the Tibetan traditions or the Japanese traditions. They don't even practice the fifth precept is abstinence. They say moderation is okay. Um, uh, uh, I'm very clear that the Buddha said abstinence, but people have now um, changed that, reinterpreted that to say moderation. Um, So, you know, Lucas, there is a place, if you're not an addict, right? If you're really honest with yourself and it's not addiction and it's a recreational uh, use of, of you know, pleasure inducing substance, whether that's alcohol or pot or whatever it is. And you still are very serious about getting on the cushion and going on retreat. And you will absolutely still make some progress. Um, and my sense is that if you get really serious about it, you might want to consider letting it go and saying like, oh, I don't need that. I'm just going to be, uh, you know, in the place of trying to just, deal with life and see life and enjoy life free from any kind of recreational use. But that's a personal choice. I had another friend um, who came to me. He asked this question long time ago, 12, maybe 15 years ago. And I said, OK, just do this. You're serious about meditation. Make your relationship to marijuana your meditation, be really mindful when you're crumbling up the buds and you're rolling the joint or whatever you're doing be bring real mindfulness to it and then when you smoke really meditate with that experience watch how your mind changes watch how your attitude changes see what happens uh, so that the whole thing is a meditation practice so he did that and he said after doing that for a month or so he said, I didn't want to smoke pot anymore. I didn't enjoy it when I was mindful of it. He mm-hmm. said, I didn't want to do it anymore. And then he stopped smoking pot and he hasn't smoked pot in 15 years because when he really brought mindfulness to it, he saw like, oh no, I don't like actually what this is doing to my mind. I want to stay awake.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a friend who who likes to say, uh, the only thing I like to be high on is mindfulness. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we've got this question from Debbie in Texas. She says, I would like to know how family members and friends can apply the teachings of the Dharma to cope with another person's addiction. Also, I've studied Buddhism, and I've recently become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I see a lot of similarities in the two, except uh, of the strong reliance on the higher power for recovery, um, which we already kind of addressed. Um, And she said, I'd love to hear Noah's thoughts on this.
1: So the way that, that Buddhism—it sounds like you already have the questioner already has some familiarity with it—but in refuge, everyone comes together. We're all looking at our craving, our clinging, our aversion. We're we're all we're all looking at the relational, the eightfold path. How am I communicating? How am I showing up in my actions? How am I? What are my intentions? My understanding. How much mindfulness, concentration, you know? So we're looking at the Eightfold Path as the treatment for addiction, as the treatment for relating to our loved ones who are addicts, as the path for all of life, right? This is what the Buddha said for everyone, be mindful, learn to concentrate, put the effort into being careful with what we say and what we do how we relate to money and sexuality and intoxicants Um, and to take that full responsibility for, you know, one of the core things that I think has been most helpful for me in relationships to my loved ones who struggle with addiction is the equanimity practice. And so maybe that's where I'll, I'll land this question, which is, Loving kindness is the practice of saying, may you be at ease, may you be happy, may you be free. Compassion is saying, I care about your pain, I care about your suffering. Uh, appreciation is saying, I, I appreciate your happiness, your joy, I wish you well, I celebrate your happiness. And equanimity is saying, even though I care about you and I love you and I appreciate you, I know you have your own karma and your happiness or your unhappiness depends on your actions, not how much I love you. And so equanimity is that bigger step back practice and understand that I can't control you no matter how much I love you. I can't control your action, your karma, only you can do that for yourself. And so that's, um, you know, I feel like in, in the family, in relationship and to our loved ones, that's really the key. Can I have compassion and equanimity? Can I have love and kindness, forgiveness, and a core sense of being at ease, even when they are in the midst of addictive suffering?
0: Yeah, I like that. Okay, thank you. Um, and then this is a question from Glenn in Australia. He says, I'm, I'm living in Melbourne, uh, recently moved from New Zealand. I've been attending a 12-step meeting for 12 years. I have found The only refuge recovery meeting in Australia is uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, I would like to start another meeting up here, but I've never done a guided meditation where I am the guide. Would it be okay to use an audio of someone else doing the guided meditation? Uh, For example, a recorded uh, meditation of Noah Noah Levine or Dave Smith?
1: You know, my, my sense is that, of course, people are, are free to be creative, and they could, use, they could do that. I don't think there's any, there's no rule against it. My sense is that one of the ways that um, it works with the format of having it peer led, you know, uh, Glenn, if you start the meeting, you don't have to lead the meditation, you just hand the script for the meditation instructions to someone else in the meeting. And mm-hmm. it's actually better if the meetings don't don't start to be like one person is leading the meditation all of the time because then they sort of take on a authority role that they're not really supposed to have. Mm-hmm. This is peer led. Like everyone should be taking turns leading the meditation by reading the script. Mm-hmm. And then that way, you know, you're actually part of and you're, you know, you're co guiding each other. Um, and it's really my hope that that refuge maintains that peer led, energy and that we guide each other. And I also like this, not only for the connection that it brings to, to the group, but I also like that it's breaking the hierarchy of Buddhism where, you know, that we've have these thousands of years of this patriarchal hierarchical. you know, only the meditation master is allowed to give the instructions and it's just more religious hierarchy. Um, and I don't, I personally don't like it so much. So I like the fact that we're doing this very radical thing that I don't think has ever been done in history, which is saying that like Buddhism peer led rather than Buddhism with the, you know, it used to be the meditation master. Now mm. it's like, are you certified in mindfulness, man? you know mm. It's become this whole industry rather yeah. than here's the teachings, apply them, yeah. apply them.
0: Yep. Cool. Yeah, I like that. Uh, okay, so just to start kind of wrapping things up, what message do you have for someone who's maybe listening to this or watching this and they're struggling with addiction, any kind of addiction, whether it be uh, pornography or, or, or with a substance, um, you know, where do they go? What's their first step for this entire process towards recovery?
1: Um. You know, maybe the first step is admitting it, right? Like admitting it, acknowledging it, accepting it, telling some people, you know, not, you know, so so much of addiction is the secrecy, is the shame, is the isolation. Mm -hmm. So becoming transparent, telling the therapist, telling the wife, the husband, the friends, the partner, you know, like getting it out so that we can say, this is real, Uh, first truth, accepting the suffering that that addiction is creating in our lives. Then maybe the second thing is, like, can I find a meeting? Do I, you know, am I ready to go to treatment? Do I want to go to a, a you know, detox or a residential treatment center? Am I ready just to go to meetings and get some peer support for it? So, um, but, but you know, gathering some support and, and telling telling the truth and taking the responsibility and the intention to establish abstinence of saying like okay i'm gonna admit this and i'm going to stop and i'm going to and maybe relapse will be part of it it often is but i'm going to try to stop i'm going to turn towards it rather than letting it keep pushing me downstream Mm -hmm.
0: okay and and uh where where do they go to learn more about refuge recovery
1: so, for the treatment center, it's refuge recovery treatment com or just refuge recovery.com. For the meetings, it's refuge recovery.org. Uh, and that will take you to the meeting listings. And, you know, there's meetings all over. If there's not a meeting in your area, start one. Get the book. The book's available. Uh, there's the meeting form. Read the book. There's a meeting format in the book on the website. Everything you need. Start a meeting. Invite your you know, friends and, uh, may the revolution be with us.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the book looks like this. Uh, it's also available, uh, in audio format on audible.com. Um, uh, and yeah, I would recommend that's a great pa- place to start to become familiar with, um, how mindfulness can help you in this process, this addiction recovery process yeah. process. And I do want to emphasize to anyone listening who doesn't have uh, isn't struggling with addiction, you know, that to recognize that to some degree, we all have a core addiction, the addiction to craving the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant, which is kind of the overall Buddhist view of, of what it is to understand, um, you know, the nature of reality. And this can end up being the cause of a lot of our suffering for ourselves and others. So anyone who's listening or, or watching who just wants to understand mindfulness uh a little better uh you know replace the idea of addiction with just the idea of suffering if if you're if you're experiencing suffering this book is also instrumental and helpful to understand how do we break out of that cycle Um, learning to become more aware of the relationship that we have with our life circumstances with our thoughts with our feelings our emotions and becoming more comfortable with the discomfort
1: and probably my other books um, for people who aren't addicts that are just interested in mindfulness and Buddhism uh, against the stream or heart of the revolution are probably more appropriate for the people that are just looking at, uh, okay, how do I apply this to my life? Um, so those books will also have the guided meditations and, and a more uh, overall Buddhist perspective, not, not the specific addiction like refuge house.
0: Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the other one. So against the stream is yeah. one of them?
1: Against the Stream and Heart of the Revolution.
0: Uh, Against the, the Revolution. Stream is an
1: overview of the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness and the Eightfold Path. Uh, heart of the Revolution is a deeper look into loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness, the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices of the Buddha. And then my first book, Dharma Punks, is um, you know, my memoir of how I was an addict and came to Buddhism and you know, eventually became a, a teacher. So that's also an interesting book. I feel like Dharma Punks is a good book to give your friend who uh, maybe is struggling with addiction, but isn't ready to admit it because mm-hmm. then they can read it and they'd be like, oh, wait, I'm just like this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he recovered and maybe I can recover too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed reading all of the stories of the various people and their, their specific uh, journey in and out of addiction. Um, okay. So I want to just wrap this up with, uh, echoing something that you kind of emphasize. And I I think in a lot of what you do, maybe in everything that you do, which is the idea that these teachings, the teachings of the Buddha are revolutionary in the sense that it's a revolutionary act to go against, uh, the way that we currently exist, right? The way that we currently, uh, uh, What's the word? Uh, we fuse with our, with our thoughts and our emotions and our labels, and it's it's a revolutionary act to become mindful of the nature of our own mind, the nature of reality, uh, and and the benefits are incredible. Anybody who practices mindfulness will know that, but especially anyone who's dealing with any kind of um, addiction, you know, could, could could also have this radical change in their life because of these ideas and these concepts. Um, so Noah, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and for spending time uh, sharing your insight and your wisdom about addiction and recovery. Uh, hopefully anyone listening who uh, would like to, to learn more, they can visit your website, refugerecovery.org. Um, check out one of your books and, and get on the path to liberation, liberation from that habitual reactivity that is causing you so much suffering and for yourself and for others. Um, do you have any final thought or, uh, anything before we go, Noah?
1: Um, maybe the only plug, I mean, we talked about refuge, um, against the stream.org. will give people information about my meditation retreats or classes. We have centers in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Nashville, there's groups all over the country, Seattle, um, so people that are interested, not for recovery stuff, but just to like do a, a meditation retreat. I have a seven-day retreat in October in Joshua Tree. Um, mm. You know, it's such a great thing to kind of just say, like, I'm going to take a week. I'm going to do a long retreat. And that information would be at against stream.org.
0: Awesome. And really quick, I also want to plug your podcast because a lot of people uh, that listen to my podcast ask about what other podcasts are, are out there to listen to. And a lot of people uh, who listen to mine recommend yours. And they say, I love th- uh, the approach of uh, against the stream and the way that they present uh, a lot of psychology with Buddhist philosophy. Um, yeah. So is that uh, does that have its own website, your podcast? No, well, the,
1: the podcast is an iTunes against the stream on iTunes is where the, the podcast lives.
0: Okay, so just search against the stream and iTunes and I assume any other podcast software, you'll find that. Uh, And that's another great podcast. Um, Well, once again, Noah, thank you very much. I'm going to turn off the live portion of this now. Uh, So thank you everyone for listening. You guys have a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please share it with others, write a review or give it a rating in iTunes. If you would like to make a donation to support the work I'm doing with the podcast, please visit secularbuddhism.com and click the donate button. That's all I have for now, but I look forward to recording another podcast episode soon. Until next time.